Well, I wanted to end uh, to start where we ended last time, but I didn't get to read the statement. Uh, and I'm not reading it as proof of concept or anything. I'm just reading it as a reflection on on our topic. And this is a statement from uh, the book Desire of Ages. I think it is the first chapter, actually. And here is a, is a reflection. Uh, the work of redemption will be complete <clears throat> in the place where sin abounded. God's grace much more abounds. The the point here is that there is more than paradise regained. There is more. That what you have at the end is more than you had at the beginning, even though it was perfect at the beginning. So here you have an improvement, upon, an improvement on perfection, if that is possible. In the place where sin abounded, God's grace much more abounds. The earth itself, the very field that Satan claimed as his, is to be not only ransomed, but exalted. Our little world, under the curse of sin, the one dark blot in his glorious creation, will be honored above all other worlds in the universe of God. Here, where the Son of God tabernacled in humanity, where the King of glory lived and suffered and died, here, when he shall make all things new, the tabernacle of God shall be with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And throughout ceaseless ages, as the redeemed walk in the light of the Lord, they shall praise him for his unspeakable gift, Emmanuel, God with us. Now, the, the more than paradise regained here, that perspective, just to, to add this voice to our to our portfolio here is just just seems to me to support the notion that what you have is the is the earth restored and not another earth see that the the christological argument that is made here here where the son of god tabernacled in humanity where the king of glory lived and suffered and died is that does that suggest that this world is abolished and replaced with another world it doesn't seem like that. It seems that this is a, a voice off the same page as we have, in, uh, as we have pursued in the, in the book of Revelation, that there is actually a restoration, the earth renewed. And notice one more thing here, that the reason for restoring this earth from this argument is not only a creation argument, that God created this earth and is committed to keeping it, to sort of that he stands by his creation. This is, a, this is an argument from the story of redemption. The reason for keeping it is because this is where he walked. You see what I'm saying? Where the Son of God tabernacled in humanity, where the King of glory lived and suffered and died. That that world, that what, what sort of empowers the case for this world, what strengthens the case for, for maintaining this world ultimately, is a creation argument, but even more a Christological argument, a redemption argument. Let's start reading Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2, and I will ask one of you to read it. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river is the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. I threw in an extra slide 
this morning. I just <coughs> was thinking about this. I think about this perspective from time to time as I walk around here in Loma Linda. Uh, and so I, <coughs> I threw in, I, I added this slide so you don't have this in your handout. What you have, the text says that there is a tree that is for the healing. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And we will concentrate on that on that image uh, this morning. <coughs> but I just wanted to do a sort of a, an aside here that the book of Revelation finds the world in a state of need. The book of Revelation speaks into a needy world, a broken, hurt world, a world in need of healing. So when, when, the, when it projects this vision of healing at the end, it is because it is speaking not just you know, to, to, about healing in a context where there is no need for that, but it is speaking about that because that is what is needed. You see what I'm, what I'm saying? That, that the book of Revelation is not, is not assuming that all is well in the world. The, the vision finds the world in a state of need. And then point number two here. The horizon of wholeness in the book of Revelation is eschatological. Wholeness is actualized only in the world to come. And why, <clears throat> why should we talk about that at Loma Linda? Well, we should talk about it from time to time because, because this institution has <clears throat> made wholeness sort of its... Uh, it's almost uh, like it has registered it and made it its trademark that we do wholeness here. We have a center for spiritual life and wholeness. We have a, a, mo a motto for the institution to make man whole. Uh, and there might be a risk on our part that we are overselling what we are actually able to provide, that, that we do actual on this side on this side of the great divide that we actually do wholeness maybe we should uh, admit that at this <laughs> on this side of the great divide what we do best is brokenness and we wallow in it and we are defeated again and again our reality is a broken reality and the wholeness reality is a future reality it is an eschatological reality and our vision in Revelation speaks to that, uh, to that uh, uh, reality, to the world as it finds it. And, and maybe, I am, <clears throat> maybe I'm just uh, oversensitive or, or out of touch or, or something, but, but many institutions in, in the world, many, many entities, many uh, organizations, <clears throat> they... They lack eschatology. What do, what do we mean by that? They lack a sense of ending. I might have said it here before, but when I go to, uh, to the meetings of the Society of Biblical Literature, which is the, where the people who do uh, religion, theology, New Testament, whatever, as an academic discipline, when I go to those meetings each year, and, and I, it's a very interesting place to be and, and lots of things to learn, but there is one thing those people don't do. They don't do eschatology. You know, they are here to stay. You know, this is going on, you know, this is a sort of an, 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 an enterprise with no ending. And if there is one thing institutions don't do well, 
there is one thing institutions have a hard time doing too. It is eschatology. Because institutions have to project stability. Institutions have to believe in themselves. Institutions have to sort of plan for tomorrow and so on. They cannot plan for their own, you know, they cannot plan for, the, them, for themselves going, going out of business. Institutions project permanence, even in a world of impermanence. Do I think that is a problem at Loma Linda? I do. I do. There is an absence of a sense of ending. That, and now we're going to embark on a new, a new uh, sort of big project with lots of new hardware going up here the next, the next uh, decade or so, if I have heard uh, that's the rumors I have. And by all means, the institution might have to do that. This might just be what you need to do to, to do business in this world. But you have to be be uh, sober about it and see if you can find ways to retain a sense of ending. The book of Revelation assumes that there is an ending and its horizon of wholeness is, uh, is eschatological. One, one, has to have a time, one, one has to have a timeline that is realistic, you know, that there is a that there is a sort of looking beyond here. Of course, we, we mean to do it. Of course, we mean to do it. But, but there are all kinds of, 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 of moving parts here that might make that future horizon, that eschatological horizon, go into eclipse. Now, let's do just one image. He shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. That's Revelation 21.4. It's part of our uh, eschatological vision. He will wipe all tears from their eyes. Why is he saying that? Every tear. He will wipe, wipe every tear from their eyes. Why is he saying that? Because there are a lot of people with tears. Because there are faces, tear-streaked faces, coming into this picture. And he is going to wipe their tear-streaked streak, tears away from those tear-streaked faces. In the world to come, you see, there is, again, speaking to a reality of need, speaking to a world in need, as it were. Well, we, in this world, if we do wholeness here, we will spell it with a, we can spell it here with a capital W, and then we have to spell it some other way in this, in this world to, to retain a sense of, of the, the sort of finitude, the, the, the limitations that, that we have for our wholeness enterprises in, 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 in this world. I have thought well, maybe we should uh, rename our center here the Center for Spiritual Life and Brokenness and, 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 and uh, see how that would work. Just, just, to, just to play it safe, you know, just to play it safe that we do not oversell our hand on wholeness because there is, there is a limit to what we can do here. Now, I do not want to, to make this sort of, sort of uh, that we should say, well, you know, retreat and, and just wait for the, the world to come. But <clears throat> I don't think you hear it as, as that anyway. So, okay. The river of life. Here in uh, the text, there is a, a river of the water of life uh, coming into view. 
that flows from the throne of God and the Lamb. And uh, let's do the Old Testament background text for this. Uh, obviously, the first place to begin is uh, is in the story of in Genesis two. A river of, a river flows out of Eden to water the garden. And from there it divides and becomes four branches. This is the primeval world with the river. Uh, and it sounds like a river of life, even though it is not named that. It is only named uh, a river. Here is another candidate text for the background or backgrounds for uh, Revelation 22. Uh, this is an eschatological river. The other one is... Uh, protological or, or primeval river, but here is the eschatological river in Zechariah 14.8. On that day, living waters <coughs> shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, which is quite a claim to make in that part of the world. You know, you go, well, in California, you know how, how to do this. Uh, but in other parts of the world, our rivers do not dry up in the summer. You know, a river that flows in summer and winter is an unusual sight in the Middle East. Uh, uh, so this is not your, your, your average river here in, the, in Zechariah's vision. Now, the main candidate text for, for the vision in Revelation 22 is from Ezekiel. And e Ezekiel contributes heavily, as we have seen, to uh, the ending of Revelation. The Gog and Magog battle is, uh, is from Ezekiel, the final, final eschatological battle. And now there is a, uh, Ezekiel imagery in the vision of healing. Uh, we'll read through all of these verses, uh, starting in 47, verse 1 through 12. Then he brought me back to the entrance of the temple. There... Water was flowing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. And the water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And the water was coming out on the south side. What's he doing? He is seeing inside. He's standing inside the temple, and there is water flowing inside this temple. He goes out to the outside, and there the water flows from inside to the outside. That's what he's seeing, running water. And then verse 3, <clears throat> Going eastward with a cord in his hand, the man measured 1,000 cubits and then led me through the water. It was ankle deep. No, not very deep, as it were. Verse 4. Again he measured 1,000 and led me through the water. It was knee-deep. Again he measured 1,000 and led me through the water. It was up to the waist. Verse 5. Again he measured 1,000, and it was a river that I could not cross, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be crossed. Now, do a little bit of thinking about this river. What is happening? Why, what, does, what, what do you see here? I wrote deep waters, but you are seeing deepening waters, isn't it? You're seeing a river that gets deeper and bigger as it gets further from the source. 
Are we seeing that? We are seeing that. No question about that. Now, what is the, what's, what's conspicuous? What is sort of counterintuitive with this sort of river? It shouldn't be. I mean, do, do, do rivers get bigger like this in real life? Only if they have more tributaries, exactly. Only if you are the Mississippi or the Missouri or whatever river you have that other rivers feed into, then you do get to be a bigger river. But this river, we have not, we, this is not that kind of river, is it? So how is it, how is it that it can multiply coming from one source? Well, it is, well, <coughs> what should we say? It is not your average river. <laughs> It is an unusual river. It is a river of blessing. It is a sort of, there is something here that, that grows as it moves, moves downstream. Maybe some, some of you want to, to uh, share with us uh, a meditative as, aspect here on, on that. It's quite a beautiful image. It's quite a compelling image, isn't it? And how he does it, ankle deep, knee deep, to the waist, and now too deep, you can't cross it. And then there is a vision of abundance along this river. He said to me, mortal, have you seen this? Then he led me back along the back of, bank of the river. As I came back, I saw on the bank of the river a great many trees on the one side and on the other. Now, this river is going in which direction? You see, you see uh, here, is the, here is the country here. Uh, what is it? Palestine? And here is uh, Jerusalem here, and down here is the uh, Dead Sea. It should be Dead Sea here. That's the Dead Sea. And which direction does the river flow? It, it flows east. So it flows, uh, it, it flows into what? What sort of country is it? Arid country. Arid country. Desert. Yeah, it's desert country. And so when you see many great, a great many trees on one side and the other, what are you seeing? You're seeing arid country come to life, aren't we? Aren't we seeing arid country becoming fertile country? We're seeing sort of the earth healing, as it were, here by this river. <clears throat> and then the notion of healing waters is, is, becomes explicit in verses 8 and 9. He said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah. And when it enters the sea, the sea of stagnant waters, uh, the water will become fresh. What is the sea of st stagnant waters? It's the Dead Sea. That has no, it's below sea level. How far below sea level is it? Quite a ways below sea level. 300 meters or so, isn't it? Something like that. And there, even more now. Yeah, the water level is, is very low. Uh, anyway, there is no river uh, exiting from the Dead Sea. It is the sea of stagnant waters. When it enters there, the waters will become fresh. Wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish once these waters reach there. It will become fresh. And everything will live where the river goes. Wow. Vision of healing, healing waters, coming out from the temple, going eastward into, into arid land and, and making, you know, sort of rejuvenating, rejuvenating uh, earthly reality where, where it goes. It's quite a compelling image. 
so one needs to do this text in detail, don't we? <coughs> People will stand fishing beside the sea from Engedi. Engedi is down there in the valley. Uh, to En Eglaim. It will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of a great many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. <coughs> so, anyway, <coughs> I'm not saying that you will go fishing in the world to come, but you, if you insist on doing it, you would have a biblical warrant. If you want to literalize this completely, then, then you will... Uh, you can do some fishing in the in the world to come. The picture is just that in this in this in this uh, type of water, this side of eternity, there is no fish. It is not it, it, it's not uh, suitable for for life. So here we see that the waters have been healed, and proof of that is the abundance of fish in it. Uh, maybe so more than the abundance of fishermen, as it were. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt. This is a concession to present reality for sure. Verse 12. <clears throat> on the banks on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water from, for them flows from the sanctuary. This is the cause, the source, always remembering why, why reality is this way. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Does it sound like Revelation has, has uh, looked, uh, is influenced by Ezekiel here? And Ezekiel, in turn, is influenced by Genesis. Surely the eschatological river and the primeval river they do have something to do with each other, don't they? And there is this, this notion of, of healing here. Oh, well, let's just read that statement here from, uh, jo uh, this is from uh, Joseph Blenkinsop, one of the great, great Old Testament theologians of the 20th century. He says, commenting on this text, no amount of exegetical finesse or insistence on what the Bible plainly says can transform the poetry of this passage into a topographically and ecologically realistic account of an, ev of an event in time. It is the eschatological river, in other words. The richly symbolic language of water healing and bringing life and fertility to the wounded earth recalls, as we saw earlier, the great water source that fertilized Eden flowing out in four branches around the inhabited world. And we read that text already. The logic, listen to this, the topography of this, let's, of the sort of symbolic topography of, 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 of the, uh, the, healing, the healing river, as it were. The logic of the symbolism requires that the headwaters arise on high land, the very high mountain to which Ezekiel was transported in 40 verse 2, and even the holy mountain of God, which, according to the poem of the king of Tyre, uh, on which, according to the poem of the king of Tyre, Eden was located. So, so here is the, it, it's not, you cannot completely transpose the image into a known geographic reality, even though it, it does it does do that tangentially. This is the, the mountain of God, and the river is flowing downstream from the mountain of God. 
And when Blenkinsop even uses Ezekiel, Ezekiel 28, what was the verse? 28, 14. He is bringing into the picture what? Cosmic conflict imagery. Ezekiel 28 is one of your major, the major texts for the cosmic conflict. And here we are sort of finding closure, closure in the context, in the story of the cosmic conflict, in the notion of the healing river that flows from the, from the mountain of God, as it were, uh, uh, alluding back to, to where the whole problem began. So, Okay, yeah, I thought that statement by Blenkinsop is actually quite amazing. I had underlined it in my book long ago, but I had never used it. And now I have, and I, I think it's an excellent way to, the way he brings it together and puts, puts us back to the, to the mountain of God, as it were, in the, in the, in the uh, vision of the end. So. Okay, now back to Revelation 22.2, because it is not only Ezekiel here. And now, now you uh, let's read it again. On either side of the river is the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month. That's Ezekiel. All of that is Ezekiel. And the leaves of the tree are for healing. That's Ezekiel too. But Revelation says something Ezekiel 47 did not say. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. The healing of the nations. So how do we do that? What's the... So we have here healing of the nations in Revelation. And we have one, one uh, text that, that feeds into that is Ezekiel. Ezekiel is a contributor to the vision of healing of the of the vision of healing in the book of Revelation. So, but maybe we need another one too. We need to have to have another uh, another contributor. And who would be our candidate for that? Yeah, I saw a hand. Well, both. <laughs> I mean, yes, I think it is real. It, it's real, but it is not. It is not. It's not a reality that, that is easily sort of that you and I can sort of pinpoint from a presently known reality. It is certainly real. It's a real place. I mean, the, the notion that, that we are, that the future life is a bodied reality, an earthly reality, a material reality, this book seems to embrace all those notions that the future life is as material as present life. It is not materiality that is our problem. It is not the fact that we are physical, material beings that is our problem. Sin is the problem, that there is evil in the world. And, and we are not doing, in the, in the sort of pl platonic paradigm, the evil, evil resides in matter. You know, the, the, so you have to abolish physical reality to fix what is wrong. But that is not the idea in the Bible. There was nothing wrong with, with physical reality. So, so yes, uh, yeah, that's, you know. I don't want to ever be heard as though we are saying it's all symbolic and there is nothing there. No, there is definitely something there. But, but we have finite resources with which to describe it. And I think even with our finite resources, the text is doing a wonderful job. It's actually helping us to 
to dream. What was it, Harvey? What was your word? Romance. Yeah. Okay. This is romance. Who who is the prophet of the nations in 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 the Old Testament? Who who loves the nations? It's Isaiah. Isaiah. So our our working hypothesis here is that that much of the body of the vision in Revelation is actually taken from Ezekiel. But then uh, what we're saying here is that that the the author of Revelation he hears echoes. He hears certain things that stand out in his ears that he that are sort of uh, impacting his his way of thinking. And one of the echoes that he cannot help hearing from Isaiah is the notion of the nations. So, uh, uh, the, uh, if you wish to read this in more detail, I gave a presentation on that topic, putting these things together. I might have shared it with some people in this group already, but I, I did it uh, at one of our SPL sessions a couple of years ago. But let's do a few texts here and see, because now <clears throat> we're doing Isaiah as a candidate background for for uh, uh, this notion of paradise regained, the healing of the nations. The primary text here is Isaiah 11, 1 to 10. And Isaiah 11, 1 to 10 has already been a key text. Uh, so I want to just do this too. Now, let's just re recapitulate what that text is doing. What's it, a text, how does it begin? Isaiah 11 begins that there is a stump left from the root of Jesse, and there, that a shoot shall come up from the root of Jesse. And he is going to do all kinds of things. You know, he is a very uh, unique individual who will, in many ways, bring healing to the nations. Where else in Revelation have we seen that text harnessed? What other part of Revelation has harnessed Isaiah 11? The most important text in, in the whole book of Revelation in terms of finding your way for, for the connection between the Old and the New Testament uh, is there. Where is uh, this notion of, uh, what, what, where, where, where else in Revelation has, have we heard this text? Revelation 5. You are in, the he in heaven and there is a sealed scroll that nobody can open. And then there is, oh, that, there is a lot of weeping. This is existentially threatening. Nobody can open the scroll. And he weeps. And he means that you and I ought to weep too. That this should all threaten us, that nobody can open the scroll. We have said here in some detail that that scroll represents human reality. There is nobody who can unseal the scroll of human reality or present human reality until who comes? Who can do it? The lion of the tribe of Judah, the... The what? The son of Jesse. The son of Jesse. And with such simple means, Revelation 5, 6, don't cry, because the lion of the tribe of Judah, the son of Jesse, or the root of Jesse, uh, Revelation has, in its most... Sort of the problem solver of Revelation. The problem solver of Revelation is the son of Jesse, the root of Jesse. And he is 
and, and so that text, Isaiah 11, 1 to 10, is a very important text from the beginning of the book of Revelation. And I'm saying now it is an important text also in the ending of the book of Revelation. You cannot over, overvalue uh, this text. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters covers the sea. Is that a vision of healing? Surely that is a vision of paradise regained. And uh, then let's read some more. <clears throat> Isaiah 11.10 On that day the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal to the peoples. The nations shall inquire of him, and his dwelling shall be glorious. What is my key word here? What's the key word in this passage? The nations. The nations. Isaiah is uh, talking about the nations, and he's saying that the root of Jesse brings hope to the nations. That's what he, you know, the, the Hebrew there is goyim, and the Greek is ethne. Uh, and then going to Isaiah 42. And Isaiah 42 is the first of the so-called, the so-called what? The passages, the poems in Isaiah 42 is the, is the Isaiah 42 verses 1 through 9 is the first installment of the suffering servant passages. Have you heard that term before? I mean, this is very key stuff in Isaiah. This is from the second part of Isaiah, starting in chapter 40. The passages about the suffering servant. And look what he is going to do here, 42.6. I am the Lord. I have called you, the, the servant. I have called you in righteousness. I have taken you by the hand and kept you. I have appointed you as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations. And then 49, 6, 49, uh, chapter 49, verses 1 through 9, is the second suffering servant passage in Isaiah. The first one is Isaiah 42, 1 through 9. The second is Isaiah 49, 1 through 9. I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Let's do a little context. What does the servant say in Isaiah 49? What is he saying there? It's too difficult. I can't do it. I'm wearing myself out. It's not going anywhere. That's what he's saying. And then, what does God say to the servant? We will do it. He's, he's saying it is too small a thing that you should raise up Israel only. I will put you as a light to the nations that my salvation might reach the end of the earth. This is a vision of inclusion. The, the nations here in a huge way coming into the picture for the suffering servant in Isaiah. Isaiah 52, verses 50, the, the, third of the, the third of the suffering servant passages is Isaiah 50, verses 4 to 9. The last one is Isaiah 52, verses 13, and all of Isaiah 53, all of those. So you have four suffering servant passages. You want me to repeat them? 42, 1 to 9. 49, 1 through 9. 50, 4 through 9. And 52, verses 13, through all of Isaiah 53. They are the suffering servant passages. Now, <coughs> and 
and the concept is valid. I think the concept has been validated by many readers of, of this book. Now, all of those passages are organically related to the, prime, to the seed passage in Isaiah 11, 10 to, 1 to 10. Did you, do you get me now on, on this? <coughs> Here is what I did for an assignment in my, tra- in my training. It was extremely difficult to do, but it was really, really worth it. When I went to Duke University, not very many years ago, to thinking that I wanted to study the subject of the faithfulness of Christ. I was in Norway. I was practicing as a physician, but I had, I had gotten this, this, uh, this compulsion that I needed to pursue that topic and see if there, was, if there was any merit to it. So I ended up at Duke University, and I, and I, I looked at all the classes I could get my hands on because it, it seemed so interesting and, 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 and I just wondered how to do this. So I started uh, first in, a, uh, I had three classes that I had figured out that fall, fall semester. And then my fourth class, I started in a class on the minor prophets with a very uh, esteemed Old Testament theologian who, uh, who is an expert on the wisdom literature and on the subject of theodicy in the Old Testament. <clears throat> And he's a, just a very lovely man. And I thought, well, you know, studying here, reading some Hebrew, you know, that was useful. But after two weeks in that class, I discovered that many of what people I considered my classmates, they were all taking a class on Septuagint Greek. And then I thought, well, that's really what I need. <laughs> so I dropped that other class because I was, you know, doing New Testament and I felt I needed to to know more about the Septuagint. And toward the end of the course, the, my fellow students in that class were really excellent students, and some of them have really sh- are really shining already as, a, as New Testament people various places in North America, which is not surprising to me. But we got to choose an assignment to write a term paper at the end of the course, and I, I uh, put myself to do the suffering servant passages in Isaiah, to do the Hebrew and the Greek translation of those passages. It was really, really difficult because it's poetry. It's quite difficult to, to do the translation. But why do I know these passages by heart now so I can say these are the passages? There are some rewards, and the passages, studying them in detail was really quite an experience. I really am so thankful I got to do that. Here is Isaiah 52, verses 14 and 15. Just as there were many who were astonished at him, so marred was his appearance beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of mortals, so he shall startle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which had not been told them they shall see, and that which they had not heard they shall contemplate. Who is they here? Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for, you know, you see, it's related, the whole thing is related to the nations, isn't it? So Isaiah 11 says that there is hope for the nations, and all the suffering servant passages are sort of weighing in in relation to the nations. And here is one more beyond the horizon of the suffering servant. Nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. So how do we do this? This I have from a book by John Hollander. Have you read John Hollander, The Figure of Echo? Well, 
the notion of echoes, language echoes. So what what happens if you if you stand in front of a of a wall or a building and you shout into that building and you have the 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 what uh, or you stand out in uh, have you done it in Yosemite maybe is Yosemite is a good place to do it where you you call out something and then you you hear uh, the words come back to you now what comes back to you what what is it that comes back the most intense part or usually the ending or is it only the ending that comes back or the intense part? Well, it's usually, I mean, what you're able to hear is usually the ending, isn't it? Or what? All of you have done it, haven't you? So, so what's the notion? What, does, what else can you say about an echo? If you are in the right place, you shout. But the echo that comes back, is it louder or the same or less than can can the echo be can the echo act, act as an ampli- amplifier can you have a louder coming back to you louder well if your echoing surface is big enough it it could maybe it isn't louder but but it has more volume doesn't couldn't you have that well that's what john hollander says at least i think he's right that you can have echoes that, that act as amplifiers. So, for example, let me have you echo. Uh, uh, let me, uh, let's do it as an exercise here. Uh, uh, I will say, well, you don't need to do it right away. I'll just give, describe the exercise. Uh, the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. That's what I will say. And now you do the echo of that. You do do the. You try to to. You have to think about how echoes work, and then you, as an audience, will do the echo. Are you ready? The leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. Wow, you really knew how to do it. That is amazing. So what was it? That's how it was for Isaiah, I think. See, he heard these things. I mean, this for John when he read Revelation. He heard that echo, the nations, the nations. And what is it? See, here is how I think it should be done. Echoes in real life pick up and amplify only a small part of the sentence. Revelation combines an echo from Ezekiel, leaves for healing, with an echo from Isaiah, the nations. Uh, and how does Revelation 22 two sound if we try to echo it today? Now I see that we're running out of time, so I'm, I have to... Well, let me walk through this quickly, <coughs> and then uh, we'll get back to this image of the echo to see what it means. I will just do this quickly. It is quite easy to do. It deserves more meditation than we will give it here. Nothing accursed will be found there anymore, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. That's uh, the next sort of big installment, to see God's face. And then there is the notion of Cain in Genesis 4.14 being hidden from God's face. There is in Exodus 3.6 and in Moses the experience uh, that Moses was afraid to look at God. Then in 33.20 he wants to look at God, but God says, you cannot see my face. And then Exodus 33.11, Moses is speaking to God face to face as 
to a friend. Deuteronomy 34.10 Never since has there arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. All of these passages just set us up to realize that to see somebody's face, to see God's face, is quite something. You know, that is not, that is an experience that that uh, only uh, rarely has been had. And then in New Testament perspective on this, that now we see in a glass darkly, 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve. But then we shall see face to face, explained as what? That when, until we see face to face, we don't really know. So again, the horizon here, the horizon of wholeness, again, is an eschatological horizon that in this life we know in part. We see in a glass darkly, but then we shall see face to face. And that is that those texts have been primed for action there by, by these perspectives in the Old Testament. So here is the summary, then, and this, so I, I skipped by that because I actually think that Revelation 22.4 is one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. They shall see his face. There is hardly a promise like that. That is an amazing promise. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads, understood as that is knowing and being known, the sort of reciprocity between human beings and God that is just just out of this world, literally speaking. It is out of this world, uh, as it were. Now, making whole. There is physical healing that extends to all creation, human, non-human, and the earth, in the vision of healing in Revelation. There is also spiritual healing. And here is how I would like to prioritize the notion of spiritual healing. That what needs healing the most... What needs the healing the most in human reality is our picture of God. It is not only the things that are damaged in us organically, spiritually. You know, surely we need to be spiritually healed for, for the, the, the things that are sort of out of, out of uh, uh, order. But Revelation's vision of healing, Revelation's vision of spiritual healing is above all a vision of healing our, our distorted ideas about God. And that, of course, is healed then when they shall see his face and we will see God as he really is. And then, this is uh, then to just, uh, just try to close the deal on Isaiah's vision of healing. Isaiah is not just saying that there will be healing in the world to come. Here is a, a way, a, an attempt to explain this or to try to construe it. There is also ministry of healing because the healing river of life also runs from the lush land of the future into the arid lands of, ple- of present reality, giving access in some small way to the healing river that flows from the throne of God in the here and now. See, if we hear Isaiah correctly, his, his vision is a vision, a yearning to reach out to the nations. It is a missiological vision. It is not just stating, it's not just an, as, 
an eschatological vision. Do you hear me? Do you hear the difference between mis- missiology and eschatology? Eschatology is describing something that will be one day in the future. But mission is something that we will do in the present. And the reason that when you hear, when I say healing of the nations, and you echo back to me the nations as the echo, it is the correct echo, but it is an echo meant to be heard missiologically. I don't think we get get quite the thrust of that. It's quite hard to grasp it because it, Revelation isn't then just describing a future reality that we one day will walk into with no sort of contribution, no interest on our part. It will sort of just dawn upon us. There is a, then a connection between the wholeness written with a small w and, and wholeness written with a capital W in a sort of vision of vocation. Anyway, we need to pick up on that because that is really what the book is up to, I think. It's really want to, it, it really wants to harness the reader of this book for the mission of, for the ministry of healing to the nations in present reality, as it were. Anyway, I kept you over time. And uh, next time we will do the last verses of Revelation 22. And, and, and uh, it's almost over. <laughs>